All right. Good morning. Let's open up in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and study your word. Lord, uh, we pray that this time would be productive. Uh, Productive not in the sense that we would simply gain information and knowledge about your word, but that, Lord, you would use that information and knowledge to change us, that uh, we wouldn't be the same when we leave here. I pray that you would convict us of sin, draw us closer to your Son, Jesus Christ, and we pray that everything that we do when we leave here would be honoring and glorifying to you. Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're continuing our series in Zechariah this morning, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. I have the text written on the board behind me, but if you can't see it, we're looking at chapter 1, verses 7 through 17 of Zechariah. The last couple of weeks that we've been dealing with Zechariah, you remember we've been dealing with the first six verses, which is basically the first section of Zechariah, and we have there... Um, Zechariah calling the people of Israel to repentance. And just as a little bit of review of the background, you remember that Zechariah is ministering to the Israelites when they are just coming back from the Babylonian exile. You remember that King Nebuchadnezzar had come in to the kingdom of Judah and he had taken over the kingdom and he had taken all the Israelites and he brought them back to the land of Babylon. And they were exiled there for several decades. It was 70 years, according to our text here. From The years for that, by the way, are 605 B.C. to 538. That's, that's how long the people of Israel were gone in the land of Babylon. And at this point in Zechariah's ministry, the people of Israel had returned to the land of Canaan because... Babylon was conquered by the kingdom of Persia. If you remember, we we went into a lot of detail about this before. I'm just kind of rehearsing it for you. Babylon was conquered by Persia, and the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, decided that he was going to be a shrewd ruler and get the people of Israel to like him so that they would obey him. And so he allowed them to go back to their land. And you can learn about that in Ezra chapter 1. Cyrus lets all the Israelites come back to the land of Canaan. But He just lets them go back to the land. They're freed from the exile, but he doesn't allow them to become their own nation. They're still part of the Persian Empire. So Cyrus still has control of the Israelites. They're not their own sovereign nation. They are just subjects of the Persian crown. Okay. So Zechariah here is ministering to the people of Israel 18 years after they return from exile, after Cyrus lets them come back. And the people are working very hard to bring the land of Canaan back to what it once was. As you can imagine, they're gone for 70 years. And when they were taken away from Canaan, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed all of the land. He had destroyed Jerusalem, tore down the walls, brick by brick, destroyed every building, destroyed the temple of Solomon. The whole land is in ruins The fields that they planted crops in are now overgrown with weeds and and trees. It's been 70 years. And so they come back to this land, and it is not the great promised land that it once was when God brought the children of Israel into the land of Canaan through Joshua long ago. Uh, It is not the same land. It is very different. It's desolate. It's a wasteland. 
and it's also inhabited by all kinds of, of robbers and thieves and uh, vagabonds and savage tribes and those sorts of people that moved into the land when they were gone. So the whole place is a huge mess, and it's in the wake of repairing the whole land of Canaan that Zechariah comes and ministers to them. You remember we talked about that in great detail. This is just rehearsing it for you this morning to set the context. Verses 1 through 6, Zechariah is saying, listen up, guys. That happened. The exile in Babylon happened because the previous generation, your fathers, disobeyed God and broke the covenant. And God sent them into exile. He warned you about it. He sent Jeremiah the prophet to tell you all these things. And then it happened because they were unrepentant and sinful, a sinful generation. And so Zechariah calls the current generation that's now in the land, beginning to rebuild the temple, beginning to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem with Nehemiah. He calls this generation to be faithful. And you can imagine that that would be a hard word for the people in Zechariah's day that he's ministering to. It'd be a hard word to call them to be faithful because guess what? They think that God's promises are not true. They're struggling with recognizing whether God cares about them anymore. Now they know that the people of the previous generation sinned and they went into exile. Right? This current generation knows that. But they've come back to the land and Persia is still in control of them. And for them, this is a crisis of faith. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God entered into a covenant with King David and told David, he said, listen, David, a descendant of yours will always be on the throne. Your descendant will always rule over my people Israel. That was the promise that God made in the Davidic covenant. The covenant with David. And guess what? In their own day, it has been 70 plus years since a descendant of David has been on the throne. And even at the present time, when Zechariah the prophet shows up, a descendant of David is not on the throne. The Persian king Darius is on the throne. And that's a crisis of faith. They're wondering about God's promises. God, will you remember us? Will you remember us, your people? And so that is, that's essentially the context here as we get into to Zechariah 1, 7 through 17. I want to read that for us here. You can follow along. Because what the whole book of Zechariah is all about, and you'll see this as we go along in these weeks, what the whole book is about is establishing the fact that God is a promise keeper. God keeps his covenant. But you may not always see that he's a promise keeper. You may struggle. It may seem at times as if he hasn't kept his promise. It may seem as if a descendant of David is not on the throne, but actually a descendant of David is on the throne. He's on the spiritual throne. And we'll see that as we go along here. So let's look at Zechariah 1, verses 7 through 17. In the fourteenth day of the eleventh month, the month of Saviv, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah, son of Berkhiah, son of Edo, the prophet, saying, I have seen at night, and behold, a man 
riding upon a red horse. And he was standing in the midst of the myrtle trees which were in the valley. And behind him were other horses, red and sorrel and white. And I said, What are these, my lord? And he said to me, The angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, and he said, These are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the messenger of Yahweh who was standing among the myrtle trees. And they said, We have been patrolling the earth, and behold, all the earth dwells and is undisturbed and at rest. And the angel of Yahweh answered and said, O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you withhold compassion from Jerusalem and from the cities of Judah, which you have cursed these 70 years? And Yahweh answered the angel who was speaking with me with comforting words and good words. And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, cry out saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great zeal. And with a great anger, I am angry against the nations who are at ease. When I was angry yet a little, they helped themselves to evil. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I have returned to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts. And the measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, cry out, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Again, my cities will overflow from good. Yahweh will again be compassionate on Zion, and he will again choose Jerusalem. There's a lot of stuff in this text, and we're going to break it down here and go through it verse by verse. But just so you know, Zechariah 1 verse 7, this, this passage we're beginning on today, is beginning a new section of Zechariah. First section is a call to repentance. This is now the second section. The second section is called the eight night visions. And the reason why we call it the eight night visions is because they are eight visions that happened at night. <laughs> so you don't need a PhD in Old Testament to figure this kind of stuff out. The, old, the eight, um, eight night visions, here we're looking at the first night vision. And this is the vision of the horseman. Now, there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. And guess what? We're going to have even weirder stuff coming up in some of the other night visions. We're going to read about flying scrolls and a woman in a basket and just all kinds of stuff that just makes us 21st century Americans go, what What on earth am I reading? All right, so some of this stuff is going to be weird. But as we go through it, I think we're going to see what Zechariah has to say to us. So firstly, verse 7 you remember that Zechariah is actually very particular when he says uh, when prophecies come to him, when the word of God comes to him. You remember at the very beginning of the book, he says that the word of God came to him in the eighth month in the second year of the reign of Darius. That's very specific. And here, in verse 7, he's being even more specific. He gives us the day, the 14th day of the 11th month of the second year of the reign of Darius. And the reason why Zechariah is giving such specific information about when the word of God came to him is because the time is very important. The historical context here is really important. And we're going to talk about it in just a second when we get down to verse uh, 11. But he gives us the time. At this time, 
the word of God came to Zechariah. And here's what he saw. What he saw is in verse 8. I saw at night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And he was standing among myrtle trees in the valley, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Now that's the vision. That's what he sees. And if we're just reading along in our text, I think the natural response for us is to say, what in the world am I looking at? What is this? This is not Paul in Romans talking about justification by faith alone, stuff we can understand and we love. This is kind of weird. There's a bunch of horses in the midst of some myrtle trees, and there's one guy riding on one of the horses. What's going on? Well, let me paint the picture for you here so we can get an understanding of what Zechariah is saying. Firstly, he sees a man, and there's a man riding on a red horse. Now, when, when you think of a red horse, don't think like fire engine red or you know, bright neon Ferrari red or something like that. For the Hebrew word for red here just means kind of like a, a dark brownish red. So kind of like your standard brownie red horse kind of color. So it's not a weird neon color, just a standard horse color. And there's a man riding on this horse. And behind him is a whole bunch of other horses. They don't have riders. They're just horses of various colors, white and light red and red. And we're told that these horses are standing in the midst of what it says in the text here is myrtle trees in the valley. I don't know how familiar a lot of you are with trees. I'm not very familiar with trees. I had to rely on a commentary to tell me this. All right? But myrtle trees in Israel are like large, very thick bushes. Think of them kind of like evergreens, but they're, they're not needles and pins. It's, it's leaves, but they're super thick. And they're relatively short, maybe like yay high. And what myrtle trees were used for, these very thick, big shrubs, is they were used for hiding things. Spies loved when there were myrtle trees around the area that they were trying to check out because they could hide in them. They're so thick, and you can fit people inside of them and just kind of conceal yourself in these things. So what we've got here is we've got an army of horses being led by a man riding on one of them. And Zechariah sees them concealed in a very common place that you conceal spies in the valley. So this is a concealed army that we're looking at here. A concealed army of horses in this vision. That's the picture. Now, Zechariah, in verse 9, asks the question we are all thinking right now. <laughs> he asks in verse 9, And I said, What on earth are these, my Lord? What are these things? What am I looking at? What is this symbolic of? What on earth are these? And he said to me, the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And then... The angel who's with Zechariah at this point, showing him this vision, says, I'm going to show you what these are. And then guess who speaks? It's the man riding on the horse. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees, and he said, These are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. These are whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. 
the word for patrol that shows up in the Hebrew here is just the normal word in Hebrew that means to walk or to go. But it's inflected in a certain stem to such an extent that the way the meaning is shifted is that it doesn't mean to just walk, but it means to walk repeatedly back and forth constantly. And that's why in the English they translate it as something like patrol. At least in the ESV, that's how they do it. So imagine these horses here are horses that are going about back and forth constantly, going about the whole earth, patrolling, walking back and forth constantly and rapidly. And Yahweh has sent them to do this. Now, it's at this point that it becomes a little more clear what these horses are. Right? God doesn't literally send red and white and sorrel horses over the earth to patrol. All right? These are symbols, prophetic symbols of angels. These are angels being described here. And they're described as horses because horses are fast, they're agile, they're like infantry. The, the uh, ancient Near East, when they were in armies or they were in war, they loved to put soldiers on horses because it made them way faster. If you're on a horse, you can move a lot faster than you can on foot. And so the image here is angels who are quick. It's an army of angels that are moving throughout the earth constantly, patrolling everything. They're angels that we'll see in a second that are patrolling everything and reporting back to God, telling him what's happening on the earth. Now God is omniscient and omnipresent and all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. He doesn't need angels to do anything, right? This is not limiting God. It's actually quite the opposite. This imagery is showing God's power, his kingly power of commanding this army of infantry that patrols the earth, keeps order. Nothing ever happens without God seeing it. That's the image here. An all-powerful, sovereign God who commands legions of angels who patrol the earth and report back to him. Verse 11, they give their report. They answered, that is the horses. The horses themselves speak in this vision. They answered the angel of Yahweh, the one who was standing among the myrtle trees. And they said, we have patrolled on the earth and behold, all of the earth dwells and is at peace. So that's their report, and they're giving their report to Zechariah. And we'll talk about who this angel of the Lord is in a second. But here's the report of the, the horses. They go over the whole earth. They patrol the whole realm of the created cosmos, and they say, the whole land is at rest. <clears throat> Unless we are very familiar with the historical context of this passage, namely the date that that Zechariah gives in verse 7 when he introduces this vision, then we're not going to understand what that phrase is. Why do the horses say that, that the whole earth is at rest? That's really important for Zechariah's original audience here. And the reason that's important is this. The, the time that this vision shows up is the second year of the reign of King Darius. Okay, that's, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that's 520 B.C. Okay? It's 520 B.C. Now, here's what was going on right before the vision happened. 
Cyrus the Great, you remember Cyrus the Great is the one who let the children of Israel go back to Canaan. He issued the edict in Ezra chapter 1. They all get to come back even though they're still under the Persian Empire. When Cyrus the Great was still alive, he named his son heir to his throne. And when Cyrus died, there were a lot of people that didn't want his son on the throne. They wanted the throne for themselves. And so there was a huge amount of rebellions and upheaval in the Persian palace in their royalty, because everyone wanted the throne. So there was all kinds of murders and scandals and rebellions and all kinds of things to keep Cyrus the Great's son off the throne. And he ended up committing suicide because he just couldn't deal with the whole situation. And in the midst of all this turmoil, one or two years, sorry, two years before Zechariah's prophecy, Darius, one of the king's generals, silences all the rebellions and takes the throne of Persia. And that's who's king of Persia at the time of Zechariah's writing. Now here's what's interesting about that. Right before Zechariah's prophecy, less than two years before, Darius first comes onto the throne and silences the rebellions. That means right before this prophecy, there was a huge amount of upheaval in the Persian Empire. There were questions in all of its provinces is this empire going to last? Is this empire going to survive? And for the Israelites, they sure hoped it wouldn't. They sure hoped no one would take the throne, that the empire would implode on itself. And you know why? Israelites wanted that to happen because then they could be their own nation and they could separate themselves from the Persian Empire and then they could establish a king and have David on the throne again. They were excited that there was turmoil in the Persian palace. But the problem is, Darius comes onto the throne, he silences the rebellions, ends all of the disturbances, and there's now peace in the land. And that's what the horses report. Darius has silenced all of the problems in the kingdom. The kingdom is stable and secure. And that is incredibly ironic for the people of Israel. Because the horses of God, the angels here, who say the whole world is at rest. For the Israelites, they're saying, the whole world's at rest, but we are not. It's ironic, because really it should be the people of God that are at rest, and all the nations that are in turmoil. It's exactly the opposite of how it should be here. Israel saying, we are not at rest. We don't have a king on the throne. We're questioning God's promises. Our land has been destroyed in these 70 years. And all the Gentiles, all the pagans, somehow they're at rest. They have peace. God, what are you doing? This is the opposite of how it should be. Why do the wicked prosper and your own people suffer? God, where are your promises? You see, that's, that's the troubling factor of the horse visions. That's the troubling factor here of the report that the horses give. And so in verse 12, we have a cry, a cry out to God. And guess who cries out? It's the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Yahweh of hosts, 
How long will you withhold compassion from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, which you have cursed these 70 years? Now, I want you to notice something here. The angel of the Lord is described in verse 11 as the man who's standing under the myrtle trees. That's the same description as the man riding on the red horse. Okay, so what I want you to see is that what Zechariah is doing in this vision is he is describing the basic scene. I saw a man riding on a horse. And then now, a couple of verses later, he specifies who that man was riding on the horse. The man riding on the horse is the angel of Yahweh. See that? The connection between those two? So the angel of Yahweh is the one riding on the horse. The angel of Yahweh is the one who is commanding the Lord's army of angels. We'll come back to talk about the angel of the Lord uh, at the end and identify this person. But the angel of the Lord is in, in command of the armies and he now acts as a kind of mediator between God and the question that all of Zechariah's readers are asking, his original readers are asking. All the land is at rest. The pagans, the Gentiles, they're experiencing blessing and stability in their kingdom. And we, God's chosen people, are questioning his promises. We don't have a Davidic king. God, where are you? And the angel of Yahweh mediates that situation and says, Oh God, how long will you do this? How long will you withhold compassion from Jerusalem and Zion? How long will you curse us these 70 years? See, he's asking the question all the Israelites are asking. And this is, a, this is the kind of thing that the Psalms do. I don't know how familiar you all are with the Psalms, but the Psalms ask this kind of thing all the time. They, the Psalms give us words to cry out to God in times of trouble, in times of distress, in times of wondering when God is going to act when he's going to do something. The Psalms cry out, how long will the wicked prosper and the good suffer? It's exactly what the angel is doing here. And he's, he's actually giving us a model for prayer. It's not impious to ask God what he's doing. The angel of Yahweh himself asks God what he's doing. How long will you do this? These are fair questions for us to ask to God. This is what the Psalms do for us. So he asks, how long will you let us suffer these 70 years? And here's the 70 years he's talking about. It's a round number from Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion up until the Cyrus decree is that they can return. 605, by the way, was when Daniel was taken. That was the first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar into, ba into Judah in bringing Daniel and a bunch of other captives into Babylon. So that's the 70 years. A generation or two. God, you've cursed us. Where's our King David? Where's the descendant of David on the throne? We don't have one. God, how long will you withhold your compassion from us and give your compassion to the wicked? That's a question we ask sometimes today too, isn't it? It's a question we can all ask God at times. Verse 13, we have God's response. And Yahweh answered, the angel who is speaking with me, with good words and with compassionate words. And the angel who was speaking with me said, 
cry out saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great zeal. This is God's message back, his response back to the outcry of the Israelites saying, God, where are you? Where are your promises? God says, listen, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great seal. I have not forgotten anything. I have not forgotten my promises. I have not forgotten about you. I am zealous for you. And the, these words that he speaks to the angel are described as being good words and compassionate words. God, God is not unaware of the suffering of his people. God is not unaware of the fact that his people need comforting words from him. And so he gives those words to the angel who then turns around and gives those words to Zechariah so Zechariah can give them to God's people, and that's what we're reading here. This is what God says, I am zealous for Jerusalem. With a great anger, verse 15, I am angry against the nations who are at rest. All those nations that are experiencing rest right now, the Persian Empire, for example, the ones that aren't facing turmoil, that have a solid, solidified, safe kingdom, God says, I am angry with them. I'm angry with the nations at rest. Because when I was angry yet a little, they helped themselves to evil. Here God's describing the Babylonians who came upon the land of Judah and wreaked havoc on God's people. Even though God's people had it coming and God raised up the Babylonians, God is still angry with sin even though he uses sin to accomplish his purposes. And so God's angry with the nations who are at ease. Therefore, verse 16, thus says Yahweh, I have returned to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and the measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Notice verse 16, that verb, I have returned. Y'all see that? That's in the past tense. In verse 16, God is describing what he has already done. Namely, what he has already done. He says, before you even asked, I have already returned. I've already had compassion on you. You just don't see it yet. I have returned to Jerusalem with compassion. And here's the result of that. My house will be rebuilt in it. Remember, the house that God's referring to here is the temple. The Solomon Temple. Solomon built this amazing temple to God. Right? It's the pride of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, knocked it down, took all of the gold and all of the precious things from it and brought them to Babylon. And what God does is he raises up the prophet. This, it's not mentioned here, but we know this from other places in Scripture. God raises up the prophet Haggai, who was a contemporary of Zechariah's. And Haggai's chief ministry was the rebuilding of the temple, to spur it on, to get the people to rebuild it. And uh, Haggai comes right before Zechariah in the order of the minor prophets. And there's a whole book of Haggai 
right before this. You can read about that if you're interested. But Haggai's ministry was to rebuild the temple. And God, because he has returned to Jerusalem with compassion, he is establishing the rebuilding of his temple. And so that's the aspect of Zechariah's prophecy that is fulfilled in literal, physical, earthly Jerusalem. God has already returned here, he says, and he will rebuild his house. But then in verse 17, we have a different aspect of prophecy. Verse 17, again, cry out saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Again, my cities will overflow from good. And Yahweh will again have compassion on Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. Notice the verbal tense change again. In verse 16, the prophecy, I have returned to Jerusalem, is past tense. He's already done it. In verse 17, all the prophecies there are in the future tense. In other words, it's going to happen at some, time, at some point. Yahweh will again choose Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And as we're going to see later in Zechariah, Largely, what Zechariah is, is it's the unfolding of this promise that God is giving to Israel. The unfolding of what it looks like that God is going to again show compassion on Zion and choose Jerusalem. And the way that God describes the fulfilling of this prophecy is he says things like, there will be perfect peace in the land. There will be a perfect heavenly city of Jerusalem. There will be no more war. There will be no more fighting. A righteous king will come riding in on a donkey and accomplish peace for the nations. See, what we find out later in Zechariah is that this aspect of the prophecy in verse 17 is not fulfilled in earthly, physical Jerusalem. Never in the history of the world since this time, has Jerusalem ever been a place of peace and security? It is one of the most tumultuous places you could ever be, politically, religiously. It's a mess. I've been there. It's a scary place in some ways. Israel, since Nebuchadnezzar conquered Babylon, has never had a descendant of David ruling there. Never had a physical descendant of David physically ruling there. These prophecies are way beyond physical Jerusalem. And if you're skeptical about that, we will see, we will see as we go along in this book that the only fulfillment that these prophecies really have is not in the earthly kingdom of Israel or the earthly kingdom of Jerusalem, but in the heavenly kingdom of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because it's only Jesus who accomplishes perfect peace and who gets rid of war and who gets rid of famine and brings a plentiful harvest and prosperity to his people. And it's only Jesus who can be the eternal, forever ruler of God's kingdom. And by the way, Jesus is a descendant of David. 
in terms of his humanity. And so for God to promise to David that a descendant of yours will always be on the throne is simply to say Jesus will always be on the throne. And he rules not just over Jerusalem or over Israel, but he rules over the whole cosmos. That's the ultimate and true fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And we're going to see that as we go along through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're going to see there's no way these prophecies can be fulfilled in literal Jerusalem. It's just simply impossible. The only place we find these fulfilled is in Christ Jesus and the kingdom that we are part of. And not to mention the fact <clears throat> that, that um, these prophecies, many of them have already been fulfilled. And some of them have not. But they can only be fulfilled through Christ. And we're going to see that as we go along. So I don't want to spend too much time on that. But let's, let's just stop at this point. But let me draw your attention back to verse 12. In verse 12, we have this character. This character called the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord, as you probably have in your English Bibles. What I want to point out to you is that this angel of the Lord is not simply an angel. This angel of the Lord is not simply an angel. You know, this term, angel of Yahweh or angel of the Lord, is used elsewhere in Scripture. And it's only used to refer to pre-incarnate existences of the second person of the Trinity namely Jesus, who appeared to Joshua when he needed courage to go into the land of Canaan, to conquer Jericho. It was the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate Christ. This angel of the Lord that we're seeing in this passage here is the typical name for Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus is the ultimate angel in the sense that Jesus is the ultimate messenger because the word angel just means messenger. And if we read in John chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the ultimate messenger because he's the one who is the message of God. He is the word of God. Jesus commands the mounted hosts of heaven in Matthew 26. Jesus, that, that is, Jesus commands the armies of God as the horses of heaven. Hmm, interesting. The angel of the Lord is commanding the mounted hosts of God in this passage. Jesus intercedes for his people as a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 what, what does the angel of the Lord do in this passage? Mediates between God and Israel. Oh God, how long will you do this? Angel of the Lord appears to be divine in chapter 3 of Zechariah. When we get to chapter 3 in Zechariah, we're going to see this angel of the Lord character is described as God himself. That's really clear. And then what also is interesting, I think, is that in Revelation chapter 6, verse 4, we are told about a man riding on a red horse who carries a sword who will vanquish the evil. That's drawing right from Zechariah here. And we know Jesus himself is described as carrying a sword in Revelation and vanquishing his enemies. What you're going to find, actually, if you study Revelation after we finish our series in Zechariah, is Revelation is borrowing heavily from Zechariah's imagery. <clears throat> so if we want to understand Revelation, 
Zechariah is a good place to start. But all this to say, the angel of Yahweh in this passage, I think you can make a strong case that this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. And notice, if this is Jesus, what Jesus does here is he comes to comfort his people. Because when it seems as if God's promises have failed, when it seems as if God has not kept his promises, guess who shows up to intercede for the people of God and bring them comfort? It is Jesus Christ. And what's the promise that God will fulfill? It's that he will again choose Jerusalem. He will again choose Zion. He will again have compassion. Why? Because guess what? He has done that in his elect. He has done that in his church. The spiritual Jerusalem. The spiritual Israel. We are, in a very real sense, a fulfillment of these prophecies. And when we, as believers, go and spend eternal paradise with Jesus in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, that will be the even more ultimate fulfillment of this. Because there is a a spiritual, a heavenly Jerusalem awaiting all of us as believers, and we're going to spend eternity there. And it's only by the work of Christ that we can do that. And it's in that spiritual Jerusalem that there will be no more war, and there will be perfect shalom perfect peace and it's only there that there will be perfect felicity and happiness and joy forever and ever that's the message of Zechariah and again we will see that more clearly as these prophecies are unfolded and expounded for us by the prophet let's close in prayer Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for prophecy. Lord, we know prophecy is difficult. Prophecy is one of those things where we we need the whole picture. We don't want to get lost in the details. We want to see the big picture of what's going on here. Lord, help us to, to love the details. Help us to love each verse of this book. But Lord, as we continue through Zechariah, help us to see the big picture of the book. Help us to see how you inspired the apostles to quote from Zechariah and show us the meaning of these prophecies. Lord, give us eyes to see what your word says. And help us, Lord, to find comfort in the fact that you, Jesus, are our mediator. You come and comfort your people, even when it seems as if promises are not coming true, even when it seems as if the wicked prosper and the good suffer, and we wonder why, Lord, Give us the strength that we need to see you and to see that the promises of God are always and in every way fulfilled. Lord, prepare us now as we trust in your promises as our God to hear the preaching of your word from Pastor Adam and to sing and confess your word back to you in the service. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.